Hi, everyone. It's Chris from Our Warped Podcast. I'm with Grace, Walker, and Kat. Let's get on with it. Great. <laughs> like it or don't. <laughs> like it or don't. This episode, I wanted to discuss the novel The Institute, written by Stephen King and published in 2019. I chose this book specifically to talk about because I feel like not a lot of people have talked about it since it's come out, and it deserves more attention, in my opinion. So, the book centers around two characters, really from the start, and then things kind of split out. I'm, I'm not sure how, how much I'm going to get into spoilers. I don't know if that's... That's actually something I wanted to okay. talk about. Um, are we going to do spoilers or not spoilers? Because I kind of have a spoiler-free version of my mandate and a spoiler-heavy version of my mandate, and I don't know which one we should agree upon. Personally, I want to know, but I think it's only I want to know because it will further the discussion. I was going to say leave all but the end. I mean, if there was something that happened that made you pick it, I think that it should be discussed. But if it's, like, crucial to the end or and then they all die then maybe don't or we can just start a thing where we end every single one of our segments with and then they all die so no one will ever really know (laughs) okay all right the book follows the story of a 12-year-old kid who happens to be a genius in tandem with a police officer who was forced to resign for reasons I won't get into in this sort of mini breakdown, but his name is Tim Jameson and the kid is Luke Ellis. So, on his way to New York, Mr. Jameson decides to take things a little slow and he stops in a town in South Carolina called Dupre and ends up becoming the night knocker, which is a position that really has died out in most cities, but it is important because it's a small town and he just essentially goes around and knocks on the doors and windows of businesses to make sure that there are no troubles going on or things that need to be brought to the attention of the small police force that work the, uh, the town. Do you have a question, Kat? I just wanted to comment that I have night knockers as well. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for that contribution. How does that work? Oh, do you want to get more into that, Chris? What do you mean? Like, so if, if like someone's robbing like a store, someone's going to knock on the door and they're going to be like, oh yeah, I'm robbing this, you know, come, come arrest me. No, but he can at least tell the police, hey, there's something going on at this convenience store or the barber shop or something. So he's a narc. He works for the police. <laughs> it, he's employed by so he's a narc. the sheriff. Yeah, he's, and right. he's still a narc. He's yeah, that's, that's a narc pretty with a sure that's what that is. Okay. All right, well, he's not a criminal himself. So I don't know how calling him a narc really makes a whole lot of sense, but whatever. Well, narc isn't narc short for narcotics officer. I don't think narcs have to be criminals. Yeah, exactly. They don't have to be criminals. Yeah, but aren't aren't they usually undercover? And that's the reason why they're identified as a narc is then you're you're able to if you're... Undercover, but working for the police. Right, but he's not undercover. He's overtly employed by the police. He's not like... Anyway, whatever. He's the metaphorical parent knocking on the door saying, everything all good in there? (laughs) I'm so sorry we got off... And we got off. This subject. is a great start, guys. I'm, I'm loving this. <laughs> I'm, so, I'm sorry. I said I'm no, sorry. That's fine. It's really don't not get a big your deal. Night knockers all twisted up. Yeah, I was just going to say, let's just go back to the night knockers. Night knockers. <laughs> I'm glad you guys uh, got a kick out of that. Name of the episode. Yeah, let's call it that.
Moving on. So Tim gets this job and we cut to Luke trying to fall asleep and there's a van that pulls up outside of his house in Minneapolis, Minnesota. A few people get out. They have guns. They're very tactical about what they're doing and they end up killing his parents and kidnapping Luke and he ends up being uh, put into the Institute. And the Institute is an entity that operates outside of the government and it isn't ever explained who really runs the Institute, but it is a facility that is secret, and it happens to be in the main wilderness, so it's very far from, from civilization, and the reason that he was abducted is because he happens to have a high BDNF, uh, which stands for something that I can't remember, something about his neurons being uh, more plentiful or special in some way, but for that reason, he has a very slight ability to move things with his mind, so he's telekinetic, and for whatever reason in this universe, some children have these high BDNF scores, happen to have either the ability to uh, TP or telepathic or TK, which is telekinetic, so sometimes in, in certain cases, uh, they can have both, but again, they are very low levels of ability. It's not nothing impressive. It's not X-Men type type things going on. It's, it's very minuscule and minute, and that's the confusing thing about this whole situation, is that there's really nothing remarkable. Obviously it is a little bit remarkable to have any kind of ability like that, but it's not clear to any of the kids that are there what the, the true purpose of, of their kidnapping and abduction was. Do you feel like there's a connection between this and Carrie? Because I know that Stephen King is known for having a lot of the same universe writing. Yeah. Possibly. It gave me more It Vibes just because of the group of kids. It sounds like the the shine, the shining, the kids' abilities. Yes, yeah, there's... Stephen King likes to uh, use the idea of kids having more... Um, I'm trying to think of how to phrase it. They're more receptive, for sure, in his world. Right, they just happen to have a higher cognitive function and abilities from that, generally speaking. Just some specialness going on, which um, it really you could, you could point to a, a lot of different uh, works that he's done, so I don't quite know the reason, but it works. You know, a lot of the time it, it's something that I guess you can be okay with. What year is the the events taking place in? It's current. Current year? Yeah. Okay. Or 2019, okay. current, whatever. I was just wondering, because then you can kind of piece together the connection between like, oh, is it taking place at the same time as other works of his? But it doesn't seem like it. No, there is a connection, and I'm forgetting to which book. There's, there's something that's referenced, and I cannot remember it for the life of me, but it wasn't very important, and it was only a brief mention. Was there a green card man? Oh. <gasps> no. It's my favorite Stephen King. Me too. So good. So we agree on something, Chris. <laughs> it's shocking. All three of us. Anyway, so to get back to the Institute here. So eventually, if you do end up, anyone does end up reading uh, The Life Path of Luke and the police officer, Tim, they do end up converging. I won't get into that, but it, it kind of, the, the book, I think, is around maybe a little over 800 pages. So it did drag a little bit in places, but um, it was, for the most part, I think, compelling throughout everyone in the Institute is no, there's only one person that really has any kind of compassion towards the kids. It's very interesting how the, this organization was able to pick uh, individuals that really have no care about the, the kids that they're supervising. They just, they're there for a purpose, and if they're not doing what they're supposed to be doing, then they tend to be pretty unforgiving. 
Very scientific and clinical, huh? Yes, yeah. The, the one standout, or one of the standouts to me, was the woman who runs the whole show, Mrs. Sigsby. She's described as, she's old, I don't know her age necessarily, but she's also anorexic, and for whatever reason, every time she would be in a scene, I would always think of the, the woman from Beetlejuice, like when they're in, not hell, but like that sort of in-between, Oh, and then she's like telling them to, you know, do that, you know, whatever the hell it was with their faces. Her caseworker. Yeah, yeah. And it just made me think of, of that woman, and I, I don't know why. But Oh, that's um, a look. Yeah, yeah. So that that's the, the image that I had going on. So, uh, aside from that, there are some interesting things that happen. There's more that I want to get into, but I don't want to really spoil anything, so. I listened to the book, and I'm right at the point where Luke gets to the Institute and starts having things explained to him a little bit. Because it was published in 2019, and I was getting a lot of like Stranger Things vibes. I kind of had a little bit of a cynical take on it because it kind of seemed like a lot of people have called Stranger Things the one that got away for Stephen King. Like it's so much like all of his properties, yet it isn't his. And it kind of seems like he was writing a book to kind of claim a little bit of that. To soothe critics? Or ride the hype? Um... Yes to both. My main issue with that argument is that Eleven in Stranger Things is is one person that happened to be experimented on, and this is a whole group of children who know their history. They they're not they don't have any kind of amnesia or or um, a, a, a brain block kind of stopping them from really knowing what their life was before you know all of this happened. So it's I get it. I, it's I understand the, that comparison, but I think that this is a different kind of story. Yeah, and I didn't mean it as any shade to. Stephen King because he's one of my favorite fiction authors ever. It just kind of seemed like because I'm still early on, I only really saw similarities. And yes, Eleven had no idea of a life before she was in the like hospital because I think she was born there or something. But like the whole fact that she's named Eleven means that there were other kids there too. She had a sister in the second season. Well, at least like a like yeah. quote yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. And it, and she had no um, interaction with anyone besides for the people who were experimenting on her. So in that respect, there's not a similarity between the Institute and Stranger Things because those kids all interact with one another and kind of are allowed to play and stay in like a certain area. But I don't but they know. Can't, they seemed... don't leave. They're they're there, and that's the the focus of the story. It's them being there and how that's affecting them and different adults they have to deal with on a daily day basis and, and everything. So yeah, I just think Stephen King is very creative, and this seemed like a little bit of a miss. And maybe it's just parallel thinking. Because just because a book came out in 2019 doesn't mean that he hasn't been working on it for a long time. I mean, he writes like a book basically every year, bound to have something that isn't like a hit like it or 112263. Like, Ken and I were reading this book called uh, The Long Walk. Yes, it was under a different name, but it was him. Where it's literally just you walked until you couldn't walk anymore. And if you walked, you died. You know, it was like, and then there was Dreamcatcher, which was also kind of a miss. And yeah, and I'm not even saying that this is a miss because it was very well written from what I've read so far and compelling. It just seemed like there was some borrowing of ideas. It's hard to come up with something like super original these days, I guess. Even for Stephen King. I mean, if he's not ripping off anything else, then he might accidentally, you know, be ripping off himself, which, given the amount of work that he's done, it's it's possible. Yeah, I was going to say, I think he's already done it. Did you see The Secret Window? No, no. Uh, you have. You just saw it in all other movies. 
Okay. And like the gifted kid is like a trope. There's always been the gifted kid that has like some ability or, you know, is destined for something. Not that that's what this is, but. Do you feel like he's lost his edge? With us ripping this apart a little bit, do you feel like he's lost his edge? No, no. It's interesting because I read a book that he did more recently that really has nothing to do with the storyline of, of the Institute. And it's apparently, and I didn't really know this, but apparently a bigger portion of what he's written is more of a crime drama sort of oh, yeah. realm, yeah. which I was Mr. not aware Mercy. of. I, yes. Yeah. I, I just happen to know about the, the books that had to do with more of a supernatural type edge. And so this, this other book, Billy Summers, was about a contract killer and it's his last job kind of thing. And again, it had, it had really nothing to do with, with anything that happened in the Institute as far as um, plot points or anything that you could really draw parallels to. So to that, I would say that no, probably, probably not. I think part of the problem is that there are obviously standout works, and that's just a fact. You can't ignore that. Nothing's I think gonna all be... artists have that. Right. Nothing is going to... And it's good to not be one level, but because of that, it's hard to say if there's ever going to be something that would, again, kind of peak and be the next thing that everyone knows about, you know? Because what he's putting out now, I think not as many people... Obviously, people still read his stuff, but I feel like it isn't getting as much attention for whatever reason. There's not really anything else I wanted to get into just for the sake of not wanting to spoil it. And I know that my description might not have been a whole lot, but I think that if the the premise on its own is intriguing, then I think that you'll get exactly what you're looking for. For the most part, there's nothing that was necessarily surprising, but there is good writing. And I think also in in part of that has to do with just the logical things that are um, steps that are are taken throughout the the plot of the, the story. So I think that that is consistent. Thank you, Walker. Thank you, guys for listening. Of course. Anytime. Even not the most inspired Stephen King is better than most. The book ended in mass casualties, aka everyone died. Speaking of kind of media that flew under the radar, or at least as far as I have been aware, um, I picked this movie that I just watched last week with my brother called uh, Love and Monsters. It's this new movie, new-ish. It came out October uh, last year. It was supposed to be released back in March of last year, but this thing called COVID happened and they weren't really able to release it. The theaters, so they pushed it back and then they did select theaters later on in the year and mostly just streamed it. So I picked Love and Monsters because, weirdly enough, I don't love the poster. Like, the, I, I don't know if they cover art, the poster, whatever you would call it for it. But that's what stuck out to me because there's a dog and his name is, what is his name, Guy? No, his name is Boy. The dog's name is Boy. And it has Dylan O'Brien, which I used to watch. Um, I might out myself a little bit here, but I used to watch Teen Wolf. And uh, he was in that and he was the best part of it. And he's done some stuff after that. He did like Maze Runner. And I don't know if he's really done anything else. I, I know he had some physical stuff that happened. He like mussed up a stunt and he wasn't able to act for a while. Cat's giving me the nod so I know I'm on the right track. During Maze Runner. Yeah. So he hurt himself during Maze Runner so he wasn't able to act for a while. So I was excited to see that he was acting again because I really like him. He's very charismatic. He's usually pretty funny and he can act with depth too. So that's why I picked Love and Monsters. It has a dog named Boy. It has Dylan O'Brien. 
and it has monsters in the name, and I really like monsters. So the basic plot is it's post-apocalyptic, where this asteroid was destroyed in the atmosphere and rained down this chemical that mutated all cold-blooded life specifically. So humans, dogs, mammals, that kind of stuff weren't affected, and everything else turned into like these crazy monsters, and everyone's surviving. Seven years after it all happens, all humans are living underground in these colonies and society basically collapsed um it's present ish day i don't know if it's seven years after like 2020 or if it's seven years now like 2020 i don't know if it really even matters because there isn't big tech advancements or anything like that a new iphone that's identical to the last iphone (laughs) right they have been no new iphones Uh, it is present day right it's wild there's like a, a base option for the new like headphones for from apple but it's like a suppository or something. <laughs> oh, God. All right. Walker's off the podcast. Uh- <laughs> if that meant that I could listen to and feel the music at the same time. Oh, you could feel the bass. That'd be I'm doing cool. it. All right. Okay. I'm doing it. I've come full circle. Sign me up. Okay. <laughs> Anyway. It's a post-apocalyptic movie, and it has monsters, and this character, Joel, played by Dylan O'Brien, had a girl that he was seeing in high school and had to split up when this whole event happened and hasn't seen her for seven years. They reconnect over the radio that they've, I guess, been able to establish, and it's not really... There isn't a whole, like, a lot of science-y stuff about how they did this. It's it's kind of campy. It's fun. It's a comedy drama. So, if you suspend your disbelief, it's a good time. I really enjoyed the movie so joel is trying to reconnect with this girl who lives in a, another colony like 80 miles away and in joel's colony he is kind of known as being the only one that's single and the only one that doesn't contribute a whole lot because they they kind of tease it in the beginning but he freezes up in all of these like high stress situations so he doesn't go out on the surface because the humans do that now but it's kind of like a quest you know they have to go out and go on these hunting parties to get food and whatever eventually joel decides that he has to do something because he's not happy at the colony everyone's really supportive of him which i really liked they weren't like mean to him in the colony like there's i don't know six seven other people in the colony and they're basically like a family but joel's kind of just bummed that he doesn't have anybody to himself you know and he kind of just feels useless so he goes on this like to find himself journey basically and he, you know, he meets people along the way. He meets the dog named Boy that he names. And the dog kind of has this weird, it's intelligent and it has its own kind of background story going on. But they don't really get into that whole a whole lot. He meets these two survivors that live on the surface, which everyone else thought was basically impossible. And they kind of teach him and it's really kind of sweet to, they, they take him under his wing. They teach him how to survive and what to look for and what mutants to stay away from. You guys would like it because there's a giant mutant frog basically in the <gasps> beginning. Um, it's a little cursed though. It, it's a cursed frog? It's a little cursed looking. It's not like just a big frog. It's got like snail eyes on its 
head and it's like the size of a rhino. So it's a baby. It's my nightmare, but that's okay. I powered through it. Um, But so that's, that's really like the plot of the movie because I don't want to give away too much. He's, he's just going on a quest to find this girl that he kind of does really off the cuff, which is talked about later that everyone's like, you're crazy. This is a suicide mission. You freeze up. You haven't seen this girl in seven years. Why would you do this? But he's like, I have to do this. And I respected that. And I thought it was a good story of finding your inner strength, I guess. So yeah, it was a lot of fun. It was funny. Uh, it has deep moments. It's got good, fun characters. And uh, the VFX are actually really good. They they were nominated. They didn't win for uh, Academy Awards for Best Visual Effects. They did do some practical effects too, which I thought was really fun. And the set designs are great. It's on Hulu, I think, and maybe Netflix. I watched it on Hulu, so that's Loving Monsters. What was your favorite monster? They, they they talk about a lot that aren't like really shown, but I guess my favorite that was shown was this. I think it was like a lamprey, like a mutant lamprey, like a leech or something, and it kind of lived like a mole and it dug underground and it listened to vibrations. So it had that kind of cool scene where the guy was throwing stuff and having to be quiet and like keep the dog quiet because the dog was getting freaked out. He had to like you know, be super tactful and trying to figure out how to stop. Then there's a lot of other ones, but part of the fun is, you know, seeing them. Oh, wait, there's also a snail, which I liked a lot. They're not all bad, which I also enjoyed. They're just like animals. So there was a snail like the size of a greyhound bus and they kind of just ignore him and don't screw with them. They won't screw with you type of thing. So it wasn't like, you know, beat back nature. It was like, you know, we can coexist kind of thing, which I also appreciated. They have this one moment where the this survival expert character played by Michael Rooker tells him you can like tell in their eyes, which is kind of that. What is that? That gun thing with plays Chekhov's gun. You know, like if they show there's a gun, like it's, it was kind of that where like that plays in later on. And I thought that was really cool. It's a lot of fun. It's got heartfelt moments. It's got funny moments. It's got etching moments. You know, it's, it's got it all. And it's a good creature design. Yeah. It's got fun creature design. It is campy a little bit. So don't expect quiet place or alien or anything like that. It is loose and fun and kind of goofy at times, but it takes itself seriously enough where it doesn't take you out of it. And everyone died at the end of the movie. Cat. I picked HR Puffin Stuff because I have a mental illness. (laughs) (laughs) Just one? Lucky. That's rare. HR Puffin Stuff is a fever dream. Like it or don't. This is your personal fever dream? I think it was something that we've all experienced and maybe don't remember. And now my new catchphrase is, like it or don't. (laughs) HR Puffin Stuff was created in 1969 by the brothers Sid and Marty Croft. (laughs) Nice. Oh, you like that? My freaking... (laughs) Walker's a fan already. Walker's off the podcast again... (laughs) <laughs> and then he died in the end. Great. All right. Well. Please continue. So we follow the adventures of a shipwrecked boy named Jack and his talking golden flute, Freddy. Uh, for a great synopsis, I would encourage that you do watch the opening credits or the theme song because everything is explained in the song right at the start. It gives you an introduction to their world and the cast of characters that we're going to meet in the episodes coming forth. There's only 17 episodes and each episode is only 25 minutes. Is that one season? It is only one season. 
season. Did it get canceled? I think it just kind of ran its course. I don't know that it was universally loved because, like I said, it is a fever dream of a show. Was it on PBS? It was on a network. I almost want to say ABC. Something else I don't have in my notes. I'm so sorry. It's all good. If you want to fire me, like it or don't. As mentioned, Jack, the human, and Freddy, the talking flute, are part of our cast of characters. We also have a few major players to mention, which are, like I said, introduced during the theme song. We have Wilhelmina Witchypoo, who's the primary villain and always trying to steal Freddy from Jimmy. As you can imagine, HR Puff and stuff. Hello. He's the mayor of Living Island. He's listed as a dragon in the credits, but if you take a look at him, I don't see dragon. Grace, you saw him. Ooh, I don't like him. Uh <laughs> I guess I do see the dragon part at the bottom, but his head looks like a, a candy corn and he's got the Kermit collar. Mm -hmm. He's got like black eyes. I didn't put candy corn to him. Uh, I mean, he's yellow and he's got orange hair. So I kind of the color scheme and the general cone-ish shape. I'm getting candy corn. Not dragon. If I were just to see his head, not dragon at all. If I were to see his whole body, I think I would get there, yeah. but it wouldn't be the first three guesses. <laughs> I would say we're dealing with some kind of chimera here. Yeah. I love his boots. Yeah, that that is probably the biggest nonsensical portion of the outfit. So you got the nice mayoral sash going on, uh, the bags under the eyes. The boots mean party. Because they're cowboy boots, there is maybe work involved, but because they're white, yes. I'm going to go with no work. There is no work because he has henchmen to do his work for him, just like Witchy Poo. So he's bad. No, he's a mayor. He's as bad as the mayor of Living Island can be. But he has henchmen. He has police henchmen, and Witchy Poo also has hench, well, bats and hench spider. Not really men. So as you can imagine from the name of the island, everything on the island is living. This includes trees, which fall into two categories, good and evil, mushrooms, clocks, houses, or in Witchy Poo's case, the castle, lollipops, frogs, and even the wind is living. Despite popular belief, Sid and Marty Croft claimed that the show was not drug-related. However, given the name, HR, standing for hand-rolled, and Puffin Stuff, need I say more, there are a lot of uh, opinions to state otherwise. I'm PR Spliff. <laughs> you're, you're, you're PR? Excuse you? Pre-rolled Spliff. Pre oh, pre-rolled. Okay, PR. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> Holy hell. <laughs> keep uh, it. Keep it in. It's That's staying in, Grace. <laughs> oh, boy. Or should I say spliff? Spliff. There are lines in the theme song, such as, he can't do a little because he can't do enough, as in addiction. Mm. Oh, that's dark. Yes. I'm not convinced one way or the other, but it seems like a strange coincidence. As with all of the Croft shows, they are full of color and puns and costumes, puppetry, which I can only imagine would make for a very interesting, not sober afternoon. With only 17 episodes produced at 25 minutes a pop, HR Puff and Stuff is a fun, shush, sober <laughs> day on the sofa. I would put fun and sober in quotes, not just sober. Sobering. <laughs> it's fun. <laughs> <laughs> you might also know other Sid and Marty Croft creations, such as the Banana Splits. They recently had a revival because they did a horror-themed movie about the Banana Splits, which I did not see. I hate the Banana Splits. I turned, How dare I changed you? the channel whenever they would show up. You're fired? <laughs> you can't fire me. You're fired? You can't fire me. You know what, Chris? Like it or don't? Don't. Okay. Lidsville, which came out in 1971, and it's a land of talking hats. 
I personally believe that it was ahead of its time, especially given the fact that there was, in one segment, a pronoun song. Yay! That's great. Way to go, 1969, said Marty Croft. That is my pick, and that is my suggestion to you to sit down and watch at least the theme song for HR Puff and Stuff. It gives you all the information you need. So, uh, a non-gothy suggestion by your elder goth aunt. Unsettling just the same. Right. Yeah, Yeah. to be fair. Yeah. yeah. Well, there you go. You know what? Like it or don't. I forgot to mention that at the end of the 17 episodes, they all die. All right. Thank you, Kat. Thank you, Kat. Thank you. I guess it's my turn now. It sure is. Let's go, Grace. Oh, boy. Go, Grace, 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 Oh, boy. Okay. My pick this episode is White Lotus. Anybody watch it? Yes, I did. Yes. Okay. We binged it. One day. Done and done. I think I had to split it to two, but very good. The White Lotus is a TV series on HBO that premiered July 11th, 2021. It was created, written, and directed by Mike White, who has an IMDb page like a mile long. He, he's he been in a lot of things. This is fresh in my mind just because I just recently caught the last 40 minutes of School of Rock. He's in School of Rock as Jack Black's roommate. He's been in other things, but that was my frame of reference. It was filmed in October of 2020 in Hawaii during the COVID-19 pandemic. It was one of the only shows that I know of that filmed entirely during the early months of COVID. And I picked the show because I wanted to talk about something that just came out just to, you know, test the water, see how other people respond to that. So you picked something relevant instead of something that came out in 1969? Yes. It's something that people have been talking about a lot on social media. Maybe not so much anymore, but definitely last month. It was the summer show that a lot of people were tweeting about. Anyway, the show is set in a fictional hotel in Hawaii called The White Lotus and follows the intertwining stories of the guests and the staff over a particularly chaotic week. The genre of the show is probably best described as a dark comedy. I saw some people say it was a satire, and I think that word is kind of overused. I wouldn't call it a satire, really, but that would get into semantics. It explores topics of American colonialism, privilege, and the wealth gap. And because it's a dark comedy and focuses a lot on wealth, it reminded me of the movie Parasite, the Korean film that won the Oscar in 2019 for Best Picture. While watching The White Lotus, the whole time I was like, what does this remind me of? What does this remind me of? And then by the end, the sinking, terrible feeling in my stomach reminded me of Parasite. The first episode, within the first five minutes, you know that someone was murdered. You don't know who, and you don't know how, why, anything. You just know that there's a dead body. There was a tragedy, I think is what they were saying. It was a tragedy. Yes. So it opens with some couple. They're at the airport. It's a couple talking to one of our main characters, Shane. They're asking him how his trip was. They're going back to the contiguous United States, and he's being kind of hostile towards them. They ask where he stayed. He says the White Lotus, and they said, I heard something bad happen there, and he said, yeah, they're loading the body onto the plane right now. And you see, you know, baggage people putting a casket into the plane. As the series goes on, we see several different relationships and interactions between the guest and the staff. Each one gets increasingly more hostile and dark. And some of the interactions legitimately made my stomach hurt because they were either super cringe and kind of funny in a sad way or just plain really messed up. 
The show is definitely like ensemble sort of production. It reminded me more of a book or a play than a show. Did you feel it was more disjointed? It was disjointed, but in a way that when it all came together, it was very satisfying. It's split into kind of four major parts. The first part is between a family with a mother, a father, a son, a daughter, and then the daughter's friend. The second storyline is between Jennifer Coolidge's character named Tanya. Tanya's mother's ashes and Belinda, the woman who owns the spa. The third and kind of fourth storyline involves a man named Shane, his fiance Rachel, and the hotel manager Armand. There's tension between Shane and Rachel because Shane is very wealthy and privileged and Rachel is not, and she's having a reckoning between how she feels about that and seeing how different they behave on vacation. And it's also tension between Shane and the hotel manager Armand. It's very antagonistic. They hate one another by the end. They become one another's nemesis. It's embarrassing for both parties, the amount of emotional weight they put on, I would say, hurting one another. Another interesting aspect that is explored is kind of how drugs affect the wealthy versus the working class. For the wealthy, it seems to be uh, very recreational, very easy to get, no consequences, whereas for the working class, it is escape. And the desperation to get that escape, it seems like, is more like to cause addiction than it would in the other party. Right. I feel like if you're using for escape, then anytime you feel that stress come on, you're going to use that and escape. Whereas if you're doing it recreationally, uh, you'll do it because you want to have a good time and not because you're escaping something. Yes. And the only escape that I feel like the wealthy people get from doing drugs is they get to, you know, feel quote unquote bad for a little while, like living dangerously, but in the safest way possible. But anyway, I would really recommend the show. There is a lot of emotion in it, but there are legitimately funny parts as well. I absolutely agree. I thought it was super enjoyable. I didn't know Mike White did anything other than act really poorly in School of Rock. So I am super interested in that and I'll probably check it out. The dark comedy aspect seems really fun. If it's recommended by two people, it means it's twice as good. That's math. <laughs> that is true. Like it or don't. Can't argue with that. Yeah. And then everyone died, right? And then everyone died. And it just got renewed. It was supposed to be a limited series, but now they're going to turn it into what Wikipedia said was an anthology series. So it's going to be new guests going to the White Lotus. Well, thanks, Grace. I completely agree with your pick. Thank yeah. you. Thank you, Grace. I will probably check that out uh, sometime this week. Yeah. I can't say it's a fun watch, but it is quality. Thanks for listening, everyone. You can follow me on Instagram at chrisambrose80, where I draw monsters and other spooky stuff. You can follow the podcast at ourwarpedpod on Instagram and Twitter. And you can follow me on Instagram, hauntingly tired, all one word, completely accurate. Don't follow me. I want to be alone right now. (laughs) Let us know if you watch any of our picks or listen to any of our picks or read any of our picks. We'd love to hear it. Bye. Bye.